Ahead on Alpha, Simon Johnson. If uh, our response to competition or pressure from China is to improve opportunities for young Americans and to expand our universities and to develop more constructive science and then commercialize that in technology that we can sell to ourselves in the world, particularly if we're recognizing planetary boundaries, I'm in. <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> You're right. It's a good. That's a very good description. In the good times, they get big payoffs, and in the bad times, it's someone else's problem. Welcome to Alpha with me, Stan Kugel. In the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, should we care about protecting corporations' multi-million-dollar bank deposits? Does SVB's collapse expose a weakness in the global banking system? Does the whole idea of banking enable fat cats to reap huge profits from risky investments and leave the public holding the bag when those risks go awry? Simon Johnson is an MIT professor of entrepreneurship who has spent his career at the heart of this system. He served as chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, an institution that, among other things, seeks to mitigate international financial crises. His forthcoming book is called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Why does the world seem to lurch from one financial crisis to another? Who benefits and who is hurt and what can be done? Well, my guest, Simon Johnson, joins me now. Simon Johnson, welcome to Alpha. Thanks for having me, Stan. Silicon Valley Bank is the topic of the moment, but I want to take a broader view. Financial markets follow an all-too-familiar pattern. Huge sums of money flow beneath the radar of public consciousness for years at a time. Financiers take home handsome profits. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, there's a panic. And in one way or another, the public is told the loss must be spread around or our economy will collapse. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> well, it's... Uh... <laughs> You're right. It's a good. That's a very good description. I, I think the incentives are distorted, so that people who run some significant financial firms have an incentive to take risk. In the good times, they get big payoffs, and in the bad times, it's someone else's problem. Right? The government has to get involved, as you said. The questions of who's going to bear that cost. You know, it's it's a good trade as far as those people are concerned. Uh, Stan, that there's. Uh, reports that perhaps still to be verified that the people who were running both SVB and also Signature Bank uh, had big cash cash out type paydays uh, one way or another in 2022. And maybe in the case of SVB actually increased their risk as we headed into this part of the cycle with interest rates uh, rising. So, you know, they're going to walk away very rich, uh, Stan. It's it's the way the system has been has programmed to operate for a long time now. Banking seems to have a fundamental flaw. Depositors are told they can withdraw their money at any time. They're told their money is safe. But there isn't a single bank in America that can actually redeem that promise, is there? Because all banks, in order to be profitable, must loan or invest that money in ways that take years or decades to mature. Is the very idea of banking fundamentally unsound? Well, the idea of banking does have an instability in it, which we've been grappling with for 100, 150 years. I wouldn't say that the, the banks in the US can't meet their deposit uh, withdrawal requirements now, Stan, because in the aftermath of SVB uh, and Signature's failure, the Fed created a so-called negative haircut window to which you can, um, as a bank, bring your government securities and the Fed will lend to you the value of those, the face value of those securities, the redemption value, not the market value. The problem 
um, as, as, you, as you know very well, <laughs> is that the market value of any of the securities below the face value because interest rates have, have risen. So at this moment, I think a lot of um, banks can actually pay off their depositors should that be should that be necessary because of this particular invention from the Federal Reserve. Lots of questions about whether that's a good idea. It, it does presumably encourage these banks to take more risk, to offer higher interest rates on, on products. Because again, the management of those banks is less likely to face the consequences when things go wrong. So there's a spread there. The Fed would be loaning value that isn't there. There's an interest cost to the banks, presumably. And part of that loss is socialized throughout the value of the dollar. Isn't that correct? Potentially, of course, there are these multiple equilibria um, in banking, so that if everyone stay. If everyone right right now, the banking situation is quite calm. Um, so if everyone stays with the banks, we don't have a big deposit outflow, and um, there's a, the whole to maturity assumption on those banks' balance sheets proves uh, plausible, or they are actually able to hold to maturity. Then there are not losses in the system, and, and there aren't losses imposed on other people. However, the fragility of banking is such. There's another equilibrium which. Deposits flow out of certain banks. Those banks um, have to be uh, liquidated one way or another, and losses would need to be realized. And the way that the FDIC would operationalize that would include losses to the deposit insurance fund, which is funded by banks or levy on banks. But of course, that levy gets largely passed through and imposed on bank customers. Uh, and if the if the deposit insurance fund were to run out of money, which is not likely at this stage, but if it were to run out, then it'd be backstopped by a loan from the treasury, which of course is um, the US taxpayer. That loan would have to be repaid and the fund would have to be eventually replenished when the banks were in a position to pay a, a additional levy. Some have proposed that FDIC insurance cover all banking deposits. Is that fair? Well, I've proposed, and some other people like Ro Khanna, a member of Congress from California, proposed that, um, and Sheila Baird, former chair of the FTAC, has proposed that deposit insurance be expanded to cover operational accounts of companies. So the point of that would be, if you're a small company and you need to make payroll, you have to pay that out of a bank account, you can't pay that out of we, you can't pay your workers with treasury bonds, for example. And that, you know, should you do we really want a five person or a 10 person startup to be worrying about monitoring their banks as opposed to getting on with the business of building their business? So I think operational deposits, right now we have $10 trillion of um, insured deposits in the US. So those are deposits below the $250,000 uh, limit uh, per person, per account type, per bank. And we have eight trillion of uninsured deposits. I don't think we know exactly how many, how much of that is operational deposits, but it's probably something like two or three or four trillion. And I think protecting that money and and taking that off the table with regard to disruptive risks and and contagion, I think that's reasonable. I would not insure all deposits, Stan, and I actually wouldn't raise the deposit limit above two hundred fifty thousand for a couple of reasons. One is you can always you can currently syndicate through your bank for a fee. Uh, so they'll put your deposit, if you have 2 million in, in deposits, they'll syndicate that across a, crunch, across a bunch of banks uh, and you'll be below 250 at each bank. So that just costs you some fee to do that. Uh, and the other reason is that if you're somebody like, you know, Peter Thiel and you have $50 million in, he said he had in, in SVB, well, Peter Thiel is perfectly capable of putting that money into government bonds if he wants. Uh, or some other kind of uh, in investment. Uh, and it's not clear that you want to encourage banks to offer questionable products, to offer to take more risk, offer very high rates on deposits right now, for example, some banks. And perhaps they have great uses for the money. Perhaps they can have a net, a positive net interest margin on that. But you really don't want 
any kind of sort of unlimited, bring me all the money you've got, I'll pay you 4% or 14%. And if this fails, it's the FDIC's problem. Yeah, you don't want to do that with all deposits. Akin to generals fighting the last war, regulators seem to respond well to the causes of the last crash, but seem unable to foresee and prevent the next one. SVB seems like a case in point, the mortgage-backed security crisis, the SNL crisis before that. If we assume that's always going to be the case, regulators can't foresee what will fail. Is there a, a, a solution to this problem? Oh, if by this problem you mean the fragility of the financial system, I think the answer is no. <laughs> there's no there's no ultimate complete solution. However, we got 15 years, Stan, since the last crisis to this crisis, and it remains to be seen how bad this crisis is, right? So 15 years is longer than I expected. I thought we might get six years or eight years. We had a pretty good run. And I... I don't think the pro- I don't think the problem is exactly they're fighting the last war or, or only imagining the last war. I think the problem is they become persuaded by lobbying and, and industry pressure not to consider the very obvious risks developing in front of them. So, good example would be um, that this is not yet fully documented, but there's good sources that say in 2018 the Federal Reserve ran some stress tests for the financial system, in which the stress scenario included high interest rates, high inflation difficulties with credit, the kind of situation we're in now. However, a number of prominent banks with household names did badly in those stress tests. And subsequently, the Federal Reserve decided not to include that stress scenario because it made those banks unhappy. Hmm. You know, <laughs> that's not, there wasn't that the Fed couldn't imagine that world. It wasn't that the Fed was could only imagine the Bernanke 2008 cut everything do QE. No, it, it was that they could imagine just fine the world we're in now, but they were dissuaded politically you know, through the various pressure channels that exist from pursuing that. And that really mattered because even though SVB had previously managed to get itself exempted in that class of banks, exempted from the stress test, those stress tests absolutely influenced the the tone and content of supervision for all banks, including the mid-sized banks. And Randy Qualls, who was the uh, vice chair for supervision and regulation of the Fed, says that he backed off regulation in order to back off supervision in order to desupervise and streamline supervision and, and actually make it subject to, to litigation and pushback from the banks in a way that had not been um, done before. So all, all of that was intentional, Stan, and all of it was deliberate and all of it was a bad idea. Uh, we're lucky it took so long to, to unravel, I, I would suggest, but but it, it will always unravel through pressures like that. It sounds like an example of regulatory capture. Yes, uh, it, it's exactly. Look, the left and the right have a lot to agree on in this issue, Stan. So the left says it's... it's um, corporations, banks, for example, or non-bank financial intermediaries that are too powerful. The right says, George Stigler, Chicago School, regulatory capture, right? So these are actually two different logical avenues that lead you to the exact same point, which is this, this problem is going to always be with us. Let's talk about the concept of too big to fail. Is our entire economy held hostage to a small handful of private companies? And is there an alternative? Well, let's talk about the Swiss for a moment, because it's always easier to talk about someone else's country. Um, Credit Suisse was in trouble. There, there was a resolution plan and a living well, which the uh, authorities uh, ignored and decided to sell Credit Suisse to UBS. So they went from having a big bank to having a much larger bank that's much bigger relative to Swiss GDP. And I think a lot of people are scratching their heads looking at it and saying, well, you know, you're, you're really taking on more risk for the Swiss taxpayer there. Uh, is that such a good idea? Now, our banks are nowhere near as big 
relative to GDP as the Swiss banks are. So that I think UBS is now roughly three times Swiss GDP. Uh, JP Morgan Chase, which is our largest bank, is has a balance sheet of about three and a half trillion dollars. Our economy is over twenty trillion dollars. So we 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 still that they that, that we have some big banks, and collectively they are a problem, and they keep getting bigger. And one thing that uh, the authorities sometimes are inclined to do is sell problem banks to those big banks so they become even bigger. It's one of our problems, Stan. It's not the only problem we have, but it's one manifestation um, of the moral hazard issues that that pervade this sector. When SVB collapsed, the people who destroyed it, a tiny number of influential venture capitalists, are the same people who had the most to lose. Why would they do that? Well, I think SVB was destroyed by its management, okay? Um, and, and they destroyed it because they got really nice paydays along the way, and they had this imbalance of risks. They get a lot of the upside payments, and the downside uh, problems are not particularly theirs. Uh, the you're, you're, I think you're referring to the fact that venture, a small number of venture capitalists triggered the run. And, and yes. you know, that's a really interesting point, Stan, because obviously what we expect uh, sophisticated investors to do, including venture capitalists, is share information, share ideas, compete with each other, look for the next big thing. And, and, and they're absolutely entitled to watch to, to uh, mitigate their losses when the, the next big thing you know, turns out to be vaporware, right? So the precise sequence of events was that SVB had had problems for a while. They hadn't been noticed by very, very many people. Then there was a sequence of events early in, the, in, in, that, in that decisive week when it became clear to more people, but not to everybody, that SVB had a problem. Those venture, you know, for any individual venture capitalist to say, you know what, guys, let's reduce our exposure to SVB, that was entirely reasonable, and and I think you would question their prudence if they hadn't said that. But you are right that because SVB's deposit base was concentrated in a particular sector, because that sector exchanges certain ideas really intensely and very quickly these days, you went on a Tuesday from qualms, concerns to Wednesday where. There were strong rumors and presumably a few leading figures were pulling back to Thursday when a a third of their U.S. deposit base, a quarter of their total deposit base, tried to leave in the same day, $42 billion. So that was a run of extraordinary intensity that was fed by the concentrated deposit base. However, the stories from Signature Bank, Stan, which have not yet been as well documented, but I think this will all come out, suggest that while their deposit base is quite different, it's more New York um, creative people, perhaps. Um, they also communicated pretty intensely and, and there was a coordinated or um, you know, classic bank run facilitated by technology, facilitated by social media. And these two banks were extreme in, in the kinds of people they had and, and, and perhaps the kinds of communications. But I don't think they're that unusual. I think lots of banks um, have um, prominent people involved who may well want to tell other prominent people Either I'm getting out or I already got out and you should get out or ha ha, I'm out and you're not. Right. So I, I don't see how you're going to prevent that in the future. I'd like to shift topics and uh, ask about the role of the US dollar in the global economy. What's so special about the dollar and is it a sustainable advantage? Well, that is, I think, the fundamental question um, of our time and the time to come. Um, it's. Um, Advantage is largely historical. It's largely because that's the currency around which the post-war system was built. So there's a lot of convenience and a lot of convention there. It's also the fact that there are no ready, obvious um, alternatives. I had a conversation. I had a discussion about this with um, 
some central bankers actually uh, just early this week, and and you know they expressed many of the obvious reservations about U.S. policy and politics and so on. Uh, and they noted, we noted together the rise of China and the fact that China would like the renminbi to take over. And then I said to them, so which of you would like to keep your personal money, your corporate money or your government's money in Chinese renminbi or some other currency other than the dollar? And then the room fell silent, right? So you have to put, if you want to hold foreign exchange reserves and you're not the US, you're another country, you want to hold reserves, which industrial countries generally don't, but most emerging markets and, and developing countries to the extent they can, do want to hold foreign exchange reserves. And in fact, given the instability of the world, Stan, uh, not just financial instability, but also pandemic instability and um, geopolitical risk, Russia invades Ukraine and so on, lots of countries feel they should actually have more reserves than they do currently. What are you going to hold those reserves in? You might hold some in gold, um, but not that much. Crypto <laughs> has risen and fallen and kept falling with regard to being a potential reserve asset. So the dollar has um, some ways to go, I think. But nothing is forever, and and it'd be un, it's unwise to um, to assume that the dollar would be the reserve currency forever. But in, in this in this phase in global financial history, I, I think it, it remains on top. When we you we mean the U.S. use the dollar for political purposes, do we undermine our own currency and risk giving, say, for example, Russia and China an incentive to create their own parallel universe? Sure. Uh, they absolutely have an incentive to do that, and they should probably get on with it. And let's see who trusts them, um, apart from themselves. <laughs> you know, the, the fact of the matter is China could buy all of Russia's oil output on a daily basis easily. Uh, they don't want to, uh, but they could. Uh, Russia, however, could not buy more than one tenth of, of China's exports on, on a daily basis. So there, there is a bit of a problem there and their ability to create an alternative block uh, like the Soviet bloc, which was a somewhat closed off from, from Western countries, that that ability is, 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 is pretty, is pretty, is pretty limited. Um, on, on the sanctions using dollars. Yes. I mean, it, it does send a signal. I mean, the question is, are you using them against real genuine pariahs and people who've, who've massively flouted and broken uh, the rules or the norms around terrorism or, various forms of belligerence. And then the big development of the last 16 months, of course, was the fact that when Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia's foreign exchange reserves were frozen, not confiscated, but frozen by the US working with the G7 and the EU, in, in part because the, the Russian dollar reserves directly under US jurisdiction, we think are relatively small, but they have a lot of dollar reserves in other places offshore, and they have euro reserves and presumably Swiss franc and Japanese yen reserves. Now that was a pretty that was a pretty big that that was a uh, pretty big um, step, and some people thought it was it would it would um, push more people away from the U.S. dollar. I don't think I see signs of that, Stan. I think the Russia's behavior in Ukraine, um, the more we've seen of it, the more egregious it it appears to more people, and they stepped so far out of what's generally regarded as acceptable behavior that the freezing of those reserves is. Um, regarded as, as reasonable. However, the next question, Stan, is going to be, how do you rebuild Ukraine? Rebuilding Ukraine, repairing the damage done by Russia will cost hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't think the US wants to pay hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't think the Europeans do. The Russians did this damage. They did it deliberately. They posted a bond, if you like, for a good performance into, into the world economy. That's what, what I'm calling their foreign exchange reserves. Why shouldn't you take some of those reserves to compensate for the damage done to Ukraine deliberately, repeatedly, egregiously by Russia. I mean, I'm, that that is not the standard way of thinking about these 
um, these reserves and, and these issues. But, you know, if you're going to we've never had a belligerent country do so much damage to somebody else stand at the same time as having these big reserves um, or bond massive performance bond posted with the world. So I, I think you, if you, if you really behave that badly, you lose the performance bond. That's my position, but that's not the consensus right now. Let's talk about capitalism more broadly. Our entire financial system seems to rest on the necessity of continuous growth. The Fed's target is 2% per year. That means an ever-expanding money supply, ever-increasing profit per hour of human labor, what we call productivity, ever-increasing churn of money in the economy. Is that possible or sustainable on a finite planet? Well, that's a good question. And, and there is this um, interesting literature and argument around the, the term of degrowth, uh, arguing that um, while you can attempt to uh, reduce the material content of GDP, so natural resource use, for example, it is an illusion to think that you can really stay within the plausible planetary boundaries without reducing GDP or without rebalancing GDP so that perhaps you let lower income countries grow, but richer income countries uh, don't grow as much. I think it's an interesting view. And I, and I do think we should look at these asserted or, or calculated planetary boundaries very carefully. For example, I think they make some very good points, Stan. For example, if we if you say, like, let's just do electric cars, that's going to solve the problem of carbon emission. Well, where are you going to get the lithium? Right. And where do you mine the lithium? What does mining that lithium do to a country like Bolivia, for example? What does it do to water? Carbon in the atmosphere is not the only planetary boundary we have to we have to worry about. I do think, though, that the, the degrowth people are overly pessimistic about technology. I think if you have the right price signals, if you can make money investing in biomanufacturing, uh, for example, you can make our economies much more self-contained and much more uh, people use the term circular, meaning you're, you're not using and depleting natural resources. I think we can move towards that if we have the incentive to do it. The price system doesn't push us enough in that direction right now. We could do more. I think we have to have some new visions for what how our economies are structured and, and to what end we devote all this um, science and other technological progress. And that's part of what we talk about in our new book, uh, Power, Power and Progress, that we can reposition, redirect technological change in a way that would be consistent with more prosperity for more people and staying within the planetary boundaries. But there's no question that we're that's not the trajectory we're currently on. After the break, we'll be joined by former World Bank expert Felix Martin and put to the test some of what Simon Johnson has to say. Joining me now is Felix Martin. Martin is a former World Bank economist, Financial Times contributor, and author of Money, the Unauthorized Biography. Martin's book about money is perhaps the only book cited both in a U.S. Supreme Court decision and by Gene Simmons of the rock band Kiss. We'll take that unusual pairing as endorsement. Felix Martin, welcome to Alpha. Thank you very much, Stan. Felix Martin, is Simon Johnson correct in his analysis of our financial system? It would be very foolish of me to uh, disagree with Simon Johnson, who is is yeah, one of my heroes and many people's heroes as a, an expert on the financial system. But can I, Stan, um, would you allow me to pick up on some of what Simon said and ask a few questions about the, the story that he told? And I could Please. begin actually with, with those, that very interesting discussion of the current banking crisis. And Simon, my first question would be, you know, you, you were at the heart of the last major banking crisis, 2007, 2008. Many people would say today that this crisis so far 
seems to be somewhat different. A major difference being that 2007, 2008 appeared to be caused by credit problems and required insurance of those credit problems by the federal government and so on. Whereas the heart of, of the SVB problems, at least, appear to be to do with interest rate risk, as you yourself described. And how, how different are these two things and uh, how different is this crisis, do you think? Well, I think that that is a very good distinction to, to make, Felix. So last crisis, from the, from the beginning, but not maybe not the very beginning, it was also a crisis of complexity. So we didn't know where the losses were. We understood that derivatives were wrapped around all of these credit products, but we didn't quite understand had the risk been spread or had the risk been concentrated. Of course, it turned out a lot of the risk had been concentrated. So this um, round does seem more straightforward on the SVB uh, and signature side. However, I, I would also say that while it's just interest rates, the manifestation that we saw for SVB certainly was interest rate risk associated with government securities, which were previously regarded as being ultra safe and in terms of calculation of various ratios that are required by regulators, often the argument is, oh, we could just ignore government bonds, there's no risk there. This clearly is risk in the sense that they, they fall in value and you still owe your depositors what you owe your depositors. So you can be, in, and uh, SVB probably was, insolvent if they'd marked everything to, to market, which is where, where they were heading. I would suggest that crises, big crises are almost always associated with things that were previously considered risk-free and treated as risk-free by executives, traders, and regulators, we actually find there is risk. So 2007, 2008, mortgage-backed securities, AAA rated, had a lot of risk. The euro crisis, um, European sovereign debt, which had been regarded as, as risk-free uh, in the European context, that turned out to have risk for, for some European countries. Now um, we find that um, banks and their supervisors have been treating government securities as risk-free, and that's a mistake. And we haven't yet, Felix, got to loans, right? So wh wh where, do the, where are the chickens going to come home to roost on commercial real estate? And to what extent, who's got what losses there? Takes a while to, to that's a sector where you get a bit of, you more like you get a slow burn. And how is that going to play out? And what kind of support will be provided to people with problematic balance sheets based on either interest rate losses or I would expect credit losses in the commercial real estate sector if if we do get a, a bad recession. I mean, I wonder if, you know, it, 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 what I'm getting at is that the um, it appears that this problem is, is somewhat more structural, in fact, than the one in 2007, 2008. Credit problems can be recognized, uh, losses realized, uh, losses spread around and so on. But if it's, if it's the case that the insolvency of these banks is due to mark-to-mark uh, it losses because of, of rising interest rates. That's a problem which presumably exists throughout the entire banking system. All banks hold government securities. They hold large portfolios of, of treasuries. Um, and in fact, they do so much more than they did uh, 10 or 15 years ago. That's as a result of regulation and also you know, natural propensity in the system. It, isn't it then the case that um, this one's going to be much more difficult to, to clean up? Won't it require some kind of structural reform of the sector? Perhaps, but another scenario, uh, Felix, is that the Fed will cut interest rates. I mean, what's preventing them right now is obviously fears of inflation. But if we're really, if you look at the latest Fed forecasts, uh, not the rhetoric of the uh, interest rate setters, I understand <laughs> there's some lag there. But if you look at the latest Fed forecast it, uh, for this year, for example, 
given what we've already seen in the first quarter, they're predicting a decline. So it's flat. The year is flat, but we've already had a positive first quarter. So if if that recession manifests itself, it would be very surprising for inflation to remain at its current level. If inflation falls, then the Fed will have no reservations about cutting interest rates. So if you, what well, obviously what's caused this problem is the extent of the interest rate uh, increase and the speed. And if that is uh, now undone or reversed substantially, I think many of these problems will recede. Now, you may be still be right that we should think structurally about to what extent we've built a powder keg that will hurt us in future uh, iterations. That That's, I think, a very interesting question, uh, precisely because we've, we've allowed government bonds to become the center of a lot of people's portfolios. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure that this ends in, in the same sort of cataclysm or potential cataclysm that we experienced in the last quarter of 2008 that we were worried about in the early 2009, for example. No. Okay. To what extent is the uh, is the Fed able to control inflation using rates? The Fed's rates seems to be our primary tool for controlling inflation, and yet interest costs, money costs, are only a small part of the economy. Other factors like the cost of energy, the uh, restrict uh, supply chain disruptions, those things are not really directly affected by rates. Can the Fed really control inflation? Well, the the, the Fed can influence in, in inflation, Stan. But you're right. There, there's other pressures, and there's a very uh, nice recent paper by Peter Orsag and uh, Robin Brooks arguing that actually what we're dealing with now is, is a lot of continued knock-on effect from supply shocks that were due to the pandemic and the way the pandemic kind of sort of ended, and and that the you should reweight in in terms of like how much of inflation is due to loose fiscal policy or giving people cash during the pandemic and or loose monetary policy, how much of it is, is that versus the supply shocks? Orsag and, and Brooks are arguing that there's a lot more on the supply shock side. So yeah, sure, the Fed doesn't control inflation. The Fed does influence the economy. I mean, raising rates does have um, real effects in terms of some things. Not this time so much through the residential housing market, perhaps, because a lot of people refinance their mortgages during the pandemic. But through uh, other channels, including the banking channel, we've just been discussing, uh, including um, commercial real estate, absolutely. So there are the, the Fed can influence the economy, Stan. I mean, the, the, the question, I think, is, do we really need to have the sort of quasi-Marxist reserve army of the unemployed out there all the time, or people who are living at the margins, very hard lives, and getting pushed out of unemployment, out of employment, pulled back into employment when things are well. Oh, we got too much inflation. Push that same group back into unemployment. That's a pretty unfair way to run a system, uh, Stan. But that that is, you know, when the when the Fed talks about slack, what they mean is how many of these marginal people who are marginal to the labor force uh, are in or out of work currently. Okay, let me pick you up on that, Simon. I mean, as as, as you've uh, just explained, you know, there are different channels through which interest rates affect yeah. the economy and. I mean, again, a criticism, I guess, that's been made of the Fed over the last 10 or 15 years, sometimes from within the Fed, sometimes by its own governors, has been uh, an excessive focus on the channel that works uh, on the inflation and unemployment trade-off, and too little of a focus on this financial stability aspect. And as we've just been talking about for most of the the, uh, prior part of this podcast, clearly, clearly these rising interest rates have bitten on the financial stability aspect. They're causing some ructions in financial stability. But you can see that even very intelligent people like Stan are somewhat skeptical about the ability of the inflation and unemployment trade-off channel to work. 
you've seen how monetary policy has evolved over the last 25, 30 years. Do you think that this criticism of the Fed is valid? As, as made by, you know, Jeremy Stein, for example, you remember he, he would make this kind of uh, criticism or, or not. Look, I think it's very fair to criticize the Fed for insufficient attention to financial stability. That was definitely the case before 2007, 2008. They thought it didn't matter. They thought you could always clean up afterwards. And 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 that was a regrettable view. And, and there was a period in the early 2010s, where I think they, they were more careful because they got burned. And also Dodd-Frank told me more careful. But from 2018, there was a separation, I, I would say, in, in between the, the part of the Fed brain that did monetary policy and the part that did supervision. And this, this, this backing off of regulation uh, which, which, by the way, they had congressional encouragement to do, backing off regulation, a reduction in supervision, and, and backing away from thinking about the stress scenarios with high interest rates, that was not consistent with where um, what they the way they started to talk about monetary policy in 2021 in terms of we're going to have to tighten and you know we'll see how much. So I think that financial stability should be much more a priority for them and then, you know, you could even say there's been some negligence there. I would separate that from the issues of, of controlling inflation and, and channels through which they, they affect the economy. I mean, I do think that is the primary way they work is by slowing things down or speeding things up with regard to employment. And I question the fairness of that, the way that it actually uh, operates. But I think that that and, 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 and obviously, if the financial stability piece is sufficiently bad now, then they can push us off a you know, some sort of financial cliff and we can have a much deeper recession, which is not what they want and not what's needed to bring down inflation. So financial stability needs to be emphasized more and needs to be integrated more with monetary policy or, or balanced with it. And and, I, and by the way, I don't think a lot of the top Fed officials were, were, were emphasizing financial stability concerns since 2018, at least. It was basically Lael Brainerd only who was holding the line on some of these changes, Felix. Uh, all the other Fed uh, officials, and certainly all the ones appointed by uh, President Trump, were, you know, don't worry about financial stability, just put your foot on the gas with regard to the macroeconomy. Yeah. I'd like to turn to Russia for a moment. At the end of the Soviet era, the Western world sought to integrate Russia into our financial system, our political system. It didn't work. What role did financiers play? What role could they have played in that failed transition? Well, f- first of all, I think it wasn't a bad idea to try, Stan, right? And given the way the Soviet Union collapsed, which was not that much to do with us, it you know had some internal contradictions that became pretty apparent and then spiraled out of control. And I was working there at the time, so I have a pretty vivid memory of these things. You know, I think trying to bring uh, Russia closer to the West and, and into sort of Western economic sphere was, was not a bad idea. I think it was mostly also, if you talk about the realpolitik, it was mostly about energy and mostly about helping Russia. The Soviet Union had been the, the world's largest um, oil producer at its peak, but by the time the country fell apart, they'd lost a lot of that productive capacity. They hadn't invested uh, and they were able to make very good use of Western oil field services. So there was good money for companies like Schlumberger, there was good money for the oil majors, uh, there was a lot of gas that could be developed. And there was, you know, really, really good questions about if you build a pipeline from Russia to Germany, committing Germany to buy Russian gas, is that creating a power, a, a sword over the head of Germany? Or is it creating some sort of mutual relationship so that it will be massively counterproductive for Russia and Germany to ever fall into conflict again. Well, we we know how that ended, Stan. It ended really badly, right? Um, and I think that writing was on the wall for quite a long time, and the Europeans should have backed away from Russia 
over the past 20 years. But I mean, during the 1990s, uh, attempting to bring Russia into, help Russia build a market economy and helping them come closer to the Western style global system, member of the IMF, the World Bank, and and, and so on. Um, that wasn't a crazy attempt. I mean, it failed. Um, it, it failed because I think the security um, apparatus, the, the former KGB element in, in Russia is far too strong. And it failed also because the power of propaganda in the modern world turns out to be even greater than it was in the 1920s and 1930s. And, and if, if you properly apply, uh, properly meaning not, not in a good way, uh, but coherently have a strategy on propaganda, you can completely outweigh free flow of information you know, from around the world, from the internet, for example, and convince your people that they have you know, either a manifest destiny to conquer Ukraine or they're about to be conquered by Ukraine, which is a completely ridiculous idea. So you better attack them first. But in, in any case, it's the combination of propaganda, oil money, and, and the KGB that unfortunately gives us modern Russia, which is a very big problem, particularly Stan, because they're backed by China. Russia by itself, I think we could we could collectively, you know, the, the, G, the G7 EU level deal with. But Russia plus China, well, we can still deal with it, but it's much more difficult, much more costly, much more risky. Simon, what do you think? Um, you, you know, you 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 were you operated, of course, in the Washington, the Bretton Woods institutions at a very high level, and I did at a very low level. We both saw, therefore, these uh, these institutions, which are some of the few places, along with the UN, where the Western nations can meet and converse and work with China and Russia and so on. How do you see the future of those institutions as forums for cooperation between? The West and Russia and China, and you know their roles in the future. Well, obviously, as a, as a forum for cooperation with Russia is broken down completely. Uh, personally, I would have suspended Russia from the IMF and the World Bank. Would not not quite so important. Uh, the membership didn't want to do that. They felt that was going too far. But the Russians are are a problematic member, and and they make a lot of trouble uh, at the board, for example. And I just don't see why you need that. China, Felix, is, is is the big question. I mean, I, I don't think it's in any of our interests to have conflict with China. I don't think that's what the West as a whole wants. I think we, we're quite happy to continue trading with China with some reservations and and maybe some better safeguards. But what does China want? And, and, and to what extent is China willing to cooperate? That remains to be seen. Look, if China wants to go its own way and, and, and build its own economic block with Russia in it, for example, and you, know, you just have to let me get on with it. I mean, the the principle, the key principle of the post-war economy is, you know, no more, no more colonies, no more empires. You, it's free association under the Bretton Bretton Woods rules or not. And you know, for a long time, we had the Soviet bloc that was in the not category, with with, with sure difficulties around the margins, but that was a um, a world that worked. Maybe we're going back to that. I'm not sure. That's so very scary if that's what China wants. I mean, China is an export-dominated economy. China needs markets. Uh, China needs consumers with purchasing power. Their problem is that the only people currently with the purchasing power sufficient to afford Chinese goods are in industrial nations that are fairly skeptical of China in geopolitical terms. If China wants to lend enough money to Africa so Africa can buy all the goods that China produces, I mean, that's that's their business issue. Get on with it. I think that would lead to unsustainable debt burdens from those African countries, and they should consider carefully what sort of conditionality would be attached to rescue packages uh, from from China. But um, you know, at, at, at some fundamental level, you just have to let the Chinese make their own decisions, 
And but isn't it, isn't it better to keep exactly that kind of discussion within? Isn't that isn't that the the virtue and the value to to us and to the world of those institutions to try and keep those kinds of discussions in some sort of multilateral format? You sound very happy to 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 go down the route of of a divided world again. Well, I'm not happy. I'm not happy necessarily, Felix. But I'm I'm just saying I don't think it's the end of the world for the world to become more divided. And and though, yes, those forums are, are uh, do have a role and can be helpful. But there are also certain uh, rules and expectations that were established in 1944 and that have been built on subsequently. And they are substantially Western liberal uh, rules. And and if you step outside those with regard to like Russia invading Ukraine uh, in an egregious manner, that which, which it did, by the way, in 2014, and it took the, the follow-on invasion to really trigger this this anger and, and revulsion. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think these are IMF and World Bank are tools of Western ideological imperialism. I think they're standards of um, good governance and reasonable international behavior. If you don't want to do that as a country, you can go your own way. I mean, there's just a couple of pariah countries right now that don't belong to, to those institutions. But if China wants to build its own um, different rules, different norms, different expectations, and other countries want to join them, then they should just get on with it. And we'll see what kind of prosperity that they get from that and, and how that impacts their governance system and so on. You seem surprisingly willing to see the reemergence of a two-track world and analogize it to the Soviet bloc. The difference is that the Soviets never achieved a successful economy. China has isn't it more of a threat to our way of life to see a parallel block emerge? Well, but by the way, uh, in 1957, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, uh, Stan, uh, many people in the US were absolutely convinced that the Soviet Union had built a successful economy in terms of technology development and reaching the frontiers of space and, and so on. And there was an organized response from the US that, you know, believe it or not, <laughs> involved bipartisan legislation to put more money into science and technology uh, and the National Defense Education Act of 1958 that increased opportunities for Americans to go to college, uh, get mathematical training, go to college and um, build careers in engineering, even if they came from very modest family circumstances. So look, if, if, if uh, our response to competition or pressure from China is to improve opportunities for young Americans and to expand our universities and to develop more constructive science and then commercialize that in technology that we can sell to ourselves in the world, particularly if we're recognizing planetary boundaries, I'm in. <laughs> and that was the point of my previous book with John Gruber, Jumpstarting America. I, you know, I, I don't think that anything about being concerned about the rise of China or China's perhaps increasing innovative uh, potential. I think a lot of that potential is still to be proven. Um, I don't think any of that can lead, necessarily leads you into some sort of destructive, conflictual type situation. I think the US should focus on doing better what the US is good at, which is innovation, but we should do more of that and we should spread it around the country and we should make sure people don't get left behind. We should be doing that anyway, Stan. If some people want to use China as a bit of a motivation to do that, I'm fine. With that, I just would not go aboard with the you know conflict with China. I think they do they do their thing, we do our thing. Let's see how that works out. And if we do what America is good at, Stan, including with with uh, immigration, including with education, including with you know helping people rise into the middle class, these are things that we used to be really good at, not quite as good at them uh, last few decades. But we can get that mojo back. Then I, I think that that would be um, that would lead to better outcomes um, for the U.S. and 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 for the parts of the world that want to cooperate with. Essentially, we're only three hundred million people. 
that seems like a small number now. <laughs> Should we be forming stronger trade blocks with Europe? Should we have abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Uh, those are good. Those are good questions. I think politically, the Trans-Pacific Partnership became very hard uh, once the Republican Party moved into the Trump column and became largely anti-trade or very suspicious of trade. Uh, and I do think there's there's a lot of concerns about jobs and and where are the good jobs going to come from, Stan? And that's the focus of my new book with Duran Rossimoglu, Power and Progress. We're, we're very much about, you know, to what extent are we automating away those good jobs while not at the same time replacing them or creating new jobs based on new tasks? If you look at what, for example, Henry Ford did and other people who really pioneered the use of the assembly line in the early uh, 1900s, there was a ton of automation and a lot of jobs were replaced, but the growth of the automobile industry created a vast number of tasks that were unimaginable in 1890. And millions of people were employed and had good jobs. And with the help of some trade union pressure, to be honest, they moved up into the middle class. Uh, so I, I think that focusing on, on good jobs as the top priority and thinking about how we develop technology and how we deploy technology, our, our own in, inventions, that is the fundamental uh, question and the fundamental problem, Stan. And as for us being 300 million, well, our population continues to expand. I think by the end of the century, the UN projection is we'll be closer to 500 million people. The Chinese population has peaked and will be coming down, perhaps they'll be down to close to 1 billion or maybe slightly over 1 billion by, by 2100. I, I don't think it's just about the numbers of people. I think it's about the quality of your system, about the opportunities you provide to people. It's about, do you continue to develop technology? Do we, do we respect the planetary boundaries? And do we innovate within those boundaries? And I don't know any other country in the world, Stan, that is close to us in terms of potential contribution to the other currently 7.7 .7 billion people who don't live in the United States who are, who need better solutions to these problems, right? Where else are you going to get them? Who else is going to invent those things? I mean, I have a lot of respect and time for many European countries, but they're not at the forefront of innovation across multiple sectors in the way the US is. So I think double down on innovation, do it in a way you, you spread the opportunities around the US and create opportunities like we used to for people from modest family circumstances, and then sell those products to the world, Stan. That's what I would recommend. You're going to do very well as a trader and very well as an innovator with that strategy over the next uh, century. And that's entirely within our capacity and our potential control. Felix, in the remaining minutes, are there any other topics you'd like? Well, to I, yes, I can't, I can't resist. Why not? Since both Simon and I hail from uh, the United Kingdom, but neither of us are currently actually in the United Kingdom. Um, I can't resist asking you, you know, you, you, you just gave a rather baleful verdict there on uh, the future of Europe relative to the US. Maybe I could probe you a bit more on that. And of course, particularly on the, uh, on the uh, prospects for our native country, the United Kingdom. Um, and one, one, one thing I could pick up on what you just said, for example, you, you, you noted that um, uh, the US, the Biden administration, um, you know, is putting a lot of money behind, for example, you know, green investment and so on and so forth. This has become quite a contentious issue um, across the Atlantic. There's a feeling in Europe that this is, you know, very preferential for the US, that Europe is being cut out of it and so on. Um, what, what do you make of all this? Can we, can we catch up? Can we keep up? What should we be doing in the UK? I was going to say, which we, but I guess, yes. Uh, so, look, I, I think that is an accurate assessment. I think it, you know, there's a big push on energy, including green energy, with an, a, a, a preference for developing technology and, and keeping as many jobs as possible within the US. But we do need partners. I mean, the Russia-Ukraine situation absolutely demonstrates the, the power 
um, uh, and, and influence of the G7 working with the EU. So that's basically the US, Canada, and the Europeans. And thank you very much, Australia, for, for joining. But that's it, right? Uh, so traded, um, trusted trade relationships are important part of this. I mean, the role of Ireland is very interesting, Felix. Ireland is an integral part of uh, many US supply chains, including producing high-value items that require a lot of trust. Uh, there are issues about whether we ship too many things across the oceans and put a lot of carbon in the atmosphere just to get tax advantages. But leaving that to one side, I think that um, Europe can and should develop its own uh, green energy strategy and work to integrate U.S. companies and U.S. workers into that. And we should do the same, vice versa. So cooperating in, on some grand strategic partnership seems to me to be the logical way forward. Um, and that's exactly the sort of thing that the Europeans love to negotiate and talk about and, and structure. So, you know, maybe maybe there, maybe there are some uh, win-wins there uh, to, to be had uh, across the Atlantic. I, certainly there's no reason why there has to become a conflictual relationship at all. I think naturally it won't. No, no, no. I, I think we, we, you know, in, in the UK, we love it, Simon, but I'm not sure, sure that the, the US or the Biden administration is that keen. That's the impression. It is, it is true that the US, the UK talks a lot about the special relationship. And I've lived in Washington for Washington for nearly 20 years. I've yet to hear anybody use the word special relationship in the context of the UK, right. <laughs> at least a private conversation. So, yes, it is. There is an asymmetry there. Uh, no doubt work uh, needs to be done. But I, I, you know, the US needs and values friends and 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 that can take many forms and, and and the uk as you know felix has got some fantastic technology some brilliant scientists and and some really top class universities so plugging those into commercialization frameworks in the us sorry in the uk and in the us and hopefully still in europe that does make a lot of sense simon johnson felix martin thank you for joining me on alpha